welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Adam Andrews. Angelina and Adam, welcome back to the show. How's it going? It's going, going great. great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. this is we, fun. We're here to continue our discussion of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Yeah, we're going to talk about chapters six and seven. Is that right? I have that. I have that right. Right. That's what my post-it note says, and that <laughs> That's is what I read. infallible. <laughs> <laughs> the infallibility of the post-it note. Um, so we're going to do that uh, first, though. What what is your uh, what is your um, what is one Christmas tradition, Adam, that you are most looking forward to? I, this is more of like I need to get to know Adam Andrews a little bit. Wow, that's just uh, out of the blue, there, David. It I had is. no idea that question was coming. <laughs> No, that's true. Um, well, here's one that when when the kids were little, my wife Missy started a little um, Advent calendar tradition, and we made little felt um, figurines or little felt um, I don't know what you call them. I don't know what you call them. Little I don't know. Tiny people. Felt things. Little, little tiny people. Yeah. <laughs> one for each day of December, and there was a little Bible verse that went with each one. That sort of you know in the Advent tradition told the story of salvation and redemption throughout the old and new testaments and the kids looked forward to it when they were little and now this year everybody's kind of grown up we have two off at college we have three out of college we have a senior in high school and the little the little felt people in the little bible verses um i'm i'm wondering how it's going to go this year whether they are a little old for that or whether they are going to enjoy the tradition for its for its own sake <laughs> and sit quietly on the couch in front of the lighted candles with their gigantic grown-up bodies all in a row <laughs> and do it like we used to do it so that'll be interesting to see how that goes down this year it's a cycle though right they outgrow it and then they reach the point of missing it and nostalgia right i think so i think so and i, I think the the element of nostalgia may be um maybe at work here which reminds me of of the great Gatsby, frankly, maybe we'll have a kind of a Gatsby moment and we'll see whether the, uh, <laughs> well, the thing we look Gatsby, back on is actually an ephemeral fantasy or not. Not too Gatsby. I'm, I'm scared of your Christmas Eve party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're going to have like the next morning, it's just going to be rot, fruit, fruit rinds and like <laughs> seeds all over everything. <laughs> fruit <clears throat> You can have a uh, fix, David. Well done. Oh. You're going to have uh, like champagne flutes just crushed all over your carpet. <laughs> I saw the Andrews party, right? That's right. Angelina, what about you? What? English teachers role. What about me? Um, yeah. So here's something fun we do. I'm going to go the opposite direction of Adam's very like holy and serious and meaningful tradition. And I'm just <laughs> going to tell you something silly and fun we do, which is that so me and my children have a great love of funky socks, all of us. So for Christmas Eve, we've been doing this for a while now, they will reach into their stockings and pull out this year's funky Christmas sock, and we will all wear it. Well, I, I, have, a, I have a practical question about this. If you're reaching into your stocking on Christmas <laughs> Eve for your socks, then how did Santa have time to bring the socks? Okay, so my kids are kind of old, and I feel like I don't know who's listening to this, so I don't know how to answer that. But um, I'm an, Mom stop. is an Just official stop. Santa Just elf. I am, an, I am a certified... I took an online test, and I am a certified Santa's helper. Does that mean you can, like, officiate, like, elf weddings or something? Yes, and also I'm legally allowed to come into your fireplace. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't I'm not going to say he doesn't exist, but I've been doing this Christmas thing a lot of years and he shows up pretty infrequently to help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. So the reason that I did ask that question actually does have to do with nostalgia. And I think these, this is a book that's frequently, shall we say about nostalgia. Um, so uh, partly it was, it was that I wanted to just talk about Christmas because it's almost Christmas time. I'm kind of getting excited. And I also need some new traditions for my family. You know, I've got a young family, so I got to come up with something. Can you make up a tradition on the spot? Is that a thing? Is that possible? Well, we did. Oh, sure. As long as you do it every year, you bet. <laughs> so like best intentions, right? Dad, I like it when you go out on the front porch and swear. Can we do that again this year? <laughs> Only on Sundays. That <laughs> experience, sir. <laughs> Uh, before we dive into The Great Gatsby, though, I do need to say a quick word from our mutual friends over at New College Franklin. They are a four-year classical Christian liberal arts college nestled in downtown Franklin, Tennessee. Focused on the great ideas, the quadrivium and the trivium, New College is, de is dedicated to spiritually forming students. 
by discipling them through the seven liberal arts for wisdom, virtue, and service. New College Franklin, a new college reclaiming and recasting the old Augustinian idea of education to take delight in contemplating created truth. Find out more at newcollegefranklin.org. Again, that's newcollegefranklin, as in Benjamin Franklin, .org. Also Franklin, Tennessee. But I prefer to think of it as being the new college of Benjamin Franklin. Well, Franklin, Tennessee is named after Benjamin Franklin. I did not know that. <laughs> so if that's true, if it's it not true, true, you could have duped me. If it's true, then <laughs> it's ironic that you say that because Benjamin Franklin is also something that is related to this book. Heck yeah, Not self-made a, man. There you go. There's your prototype. Yeah, and it very specifically comes up in chapter eight, I want to say. Um, let's talk six and seven, though. Angelina, you have, well, you, you, you have read this before, but you had read it a long time. Oh, so. I remember nothing. Oh my gosh, I was in for such a shock. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was going to say in six and seven, a lot of the drama sort of comes to a head, right? The uh, We're beginning to get some... Uh, some of the layers begin to unfold a little bit. We're starting to have some, some, uh, some uh, very specifically some people. Well, I, I was going to say crashing together, but that might be in poor taste when I think about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so did you, did you, I was thinking about it. This is kind of a vague and kind of general question, um, which I know you hate these, but, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When you were reading these chapters and you have this sort of the clash of, you know the clash in the in the hotel suite where a lot of the the sort of behind the scenes stuff actually gets spoken, and then you have the this, the chapter seven where uh, Myrtle gets gets hit by the car, and um, so all, as all that's happening, were you feeling like this seems natural, or did it feel um, contrived, or like he was pushing things ahead too quickly? I I don't, I don't have an answer to that question. I'm just curious. Um, about your perspective on that as someone who is is effectively reading it for the first time? That's a good question. Okay, so I, I think I have two answers to that. In terms of the narrative, I, I didn't feel like he lost control of the narrative or stopped being a good storyteller or anything like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it That's a fair did, distinction. It did strike me in terms of the plot that it felt somewhat unnatural, but I thought that that was on purpose. Mm-hmm. Go um, on. Well... <sighs> It's a climactic scene that felt anticlimactic, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, just the way that it's set up and, and things did get spoken, but so much didn't get spoken. There was still a lot happening under the surface. I mean, Gatsby, I don't even think really grasps that he got shut out immediately. I think Nick sees it first. It's just, and then that weird scene in the kitchen where we're not happy, but we're not unhappy, but this is how it's going to be just this. To end, a, chap, to end chapter seven right it was a yeah. blow up but it was also not i mean obviously it's a blow up for gatsby he's he's been crushed here but yeah as i was reading it it didn't it did not feel like the classic sh- showdown between two men fighting over a woman saying choose right now it just it didn't feel like that at all yeah yeah i, I love that actually that element of that scene because the because tom buchanan is once he realizes that he's got gatsby's number and he exposes him for a bootlegger. Um, and uh, Fitzgerald says, um, Buchanan was now comfortable enough to be condescending or something. The, the, the mm. crisis is passed for Buchanan. Yeah. Then he basically um, ignores and disregards Gatsby and all of his plans. Hmm. And I think the way the anticlimax proceeds from that moment underscores that get the fantasy nature of all of Gatsby's plans there. Yeah. Hmm. There's this element of unreality about everything that Gatsby has done since the beginning of the novel. And now his actual dream that he had in his hands is got that, that patina of unreality over it as well. And the mundane scene of Tom Buchanan and his lawful wife sitting in their marital kitchen, talking over bottles of ale and fried chicken mm-hmm. As if nothing, you know, as if nothing earth shattering has actually happened. While Gatsby's outside afraid that he might rough her up. Like that's the imagination he has. Right. Mm -hmm. So it underscores that the solid real nature of the Buchanan marriage and and emphasizes the the complete fantasy that Gatsby is involved in. And, And Fitzgerald's twisting the knife there because 
the solid, real, lawful marriage between Buchanan and Daisy is a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not happy together. They don't love each other. There's nothing fruitful about that marriage in any good way. And yet, it's the real thing. And Gatsby's, Gatsby's yes. plan is pure fantasy. That line when Tom said, there have been things between me and Daisy that you could never understand. I was just going to say that, yeah. That was a great line. <laughs> and you I know, think... Just stick the knife in. But that speaks to what Adam, you know, obviously you're responding to what he said, but also there's the part where um, Adam just said there's nothing fruitful about it. And I immediately thought, well, except for the child. But even that's so weird. True. It's weird. But, you know, Gatsby, that's not even something Gatsby can conceive of, right? It's like part of the unreality of Gatsby's sort of imagined vision for their lives together. And you can see that Daisy in, in chapter six, when, she she gets this she gets the little girl Pammy I think all was it is it Pammy is that right yes Pammy yeah. gets gets her all dolled up right to show her off for the for three minutes or whatever and it's 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 sort of like fake affectionate with her you know in the moment and you can tell that she's trying to show her off to Gatsby and mm-hmm. say she's a mini this me, is part, she says. exactly and like don't like if if as if she's saying if you and I end up together mm-hmm. you won't see her and think about Tom. Yes, you, don't think yes. you, don't, you won't ever have to, you won't be reminded of him. Um, but it's clear that she's kind of showing him off and trying to say, this is, this is like, she's trying to say, this is the full me here. This is like, this is part of, if, if you're going to be with me, this is what it's the whole thing's going to look like. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Tom Buchanan's, but his response to Gatsby, I mean, it was just, oh, as the kids would say, it was just sick burns all around <laughs> as he, as he, just keeps popping the bubble of Gatsby's fantasy when Gatsby so proudly proclaims we've loved each other for five years. And Tom says, you, you've been together for five years. Well, no, not together. Just in our hearts, separated. We were in love. And he was like, oh, oh, is that all? Like just, just the illusion is just, Tom just scoffs at it, at, at the very idea of it. And then, oh, that final play of Gatsby, you take Daisy home. That mm-hmm. was the final and complete and utter defeat. You are not a threat to me take her and he and he each he's kind of bit by bit you know adam mentioned the the bootlegger comment bit by bit he's sort of removing the shine mm. on gatsby for daisy he's just he's dropping little hints here and there little little reasons for her to sort of doubt gatsby for her to think less of him a bit at a time uh and, it, and or or maybe that just makes him look look uh slightly better than he did when in comparison to Gatsby previously. But do you think, Adam, I'll ask you this first. Do you think that Tom is, um, is actually as in control of things there as he thinks he is, or is he, is it just sort of working out more for him in the end? Because Gatsby's also sort of lacks control of himself. There's even that line of self about Mm -hmm. self-control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they're both the both of them are of course struggling in that climactic scene for control of the situation and you know by extension for control of their world and for control of the world and I think it's fair to to notice that neither one of them is actually in control like you just said a second ago things sort of fall out the way they do and Gatsby is defeated and Tom is relieved and I think it comes not by any failure on Tom's part or success on Tom's part or failure on Gatsby's part, it comes in, in Daisy and her reaction mm-hmm. when, when Gatsby basically says, you never, she, uh, she looked at him blindly. Daisy does. Why, how could I love him? Possibly referring to Tom Gatsby tries to correct her. You never loved him. And then he Fitzgerald says she hesitated. Mm-hmm. I never loved him. She said with perceptible reluctance. And then she realizes that Gatsby wants her not only to say that she loves him, Gatsby, now and doesn't love Tom right now, but she wants to, she, he wants her to deny the whole thing that she ever loved Tom Buchanan at all so that his fantasy can be complete, that these five years were two lovers waiting single-mindedly to be together. And so she finally says this, oh, you want too much, mm-hmm. she cried to Gatsby. Yeah. I love you now. Isn't that enough? I can't help what's past. She began to sob helplessly. I did love him once, but I loved you too. Yeah, and in dip- this moment, it falls out mm-hmm. against Gatsby and for Tom Buchanan. And I think both men are, um, they, they wait for that decision and are affected by it mm-hmm. variously. The, de- the demands that Gatsby puts on Daisy are 
essentially sort of unfair, but also, in, well, they're unfair in the sense that they're impossible for her to to meet. Like he wants something of her that is is false. Um, that he, but that he that he can't imagine it being any other way. There can't be, you know, it has to be totally the way his mind imagined it, or the way he and the way he thought about it for years. He had it has to have been that for years she was mm-hmm. unhappily pining away for him. And like create right. her own story about for them, like he had been doing. It can't have been any sort of like half measure, or it can't have been that he whisked back into her life and you know she fell in love with him again there. It has to have been the whole story, the whole experience, the whole yearning for him for five years has to have been part of it. Otherwise, it's incomplete and, and he can't sort of function within that, at least during right. that scene. He wants the right. dream rather than the real woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it right. Uh, when um when Tom uncovers that he's a bootlegger and that he may be worse. He alludes to something even worse than that. Um, Fitzgerald says, he, Gatsby, began to talk excitedly to Daisy, denying everything, defending his name against accusations that had not been made. And then, but with every word, she was drawing further and further into herself. So he gave that up and only the dead dream fought on as the afternoon slipped away, trying to touch what was no longer tangible, struggling unhappily undespairingly toward that lost voice across the room. But I think it's interesting that Fitzgerald uses the word undespairingly to yeah. describe Gatsby's dead dream fighting on. He, he yeah. retreats immediately when the circumstances show that he's, that he's lost. He retreats immediately to the dream where there is no despair. There's only a ceaseless fighting on of his yeah. fantasy. There's a sort of pragmatism in his dreaming that that's almost disturbing. <laughs> Yeah, he sort of I, and, recognizes the situation, and but he won't. It's not actually hopeful, in a sense. Like there's, he doesn't seem like his dream is like hope behind it. If that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if hope is a fair word to use to describe it. Undespairingly is what Fitzgerald says. So we get the sense of single-mindedness and resolute, um, dogged determination. And connected to that, chapter six begins with Nick relating the story that Gatsby creates his own reality. He dreams it, and therefore it's real. Mm -hmm. And that's just as true about Daisy as it is about everything else. I thought chapter six was structurally magnificent, just brilliantly structured. And the way that he played with my expectations because of how he set up the structure was very well done. I was going to ask about that. So he, he sets up. Uh, chapter six with uh, Gatsby on top and Tom at a low, right? Um, the, he's with the line was like within an hour he had lost his mistress and maybe his wife. Ever, so everything's slipping out of Tom's control. He's definitely at the low point as they enter that scene, and Gatsby's riding high. You know, Daisy's been whispering "I love you" and flirting with him right there in front of well, Tom. Has, are you talking about in seven? Wait, is it seven? No, this is before they go to the hotel. Is it seven? I think okay. you're still. I think. I think seven. it's still seven. Yeah. No, no. Yes, yes, it's seven. Sorry, sorry, my bad. It's seven, chapter seven, yeah. So um, they've been carrying on a while. She's acting in a way in front of her husband that is certainly giving Gatsby the green light, you know, th- that she's made her choice. And and then she panics when it gets tense and they leave and they go into the hotel. Which, this is so fantastic. There's a wedding happening underneath yeah. there, right? And, right? and and it, so he sets it up like you know one one union is coming together while another marriage is falling apart on top of them. That's that's how the whole thing is set up, and then it doesn't happen, right? The whole thing reverses. Yes. And, and in a moment, Tom is on top and Gatsby's at the bottom. But but like you said, Adam, not for any grand scheming or because Tom is the better man or anything like that. It all hinges basically on Daisy's cowardice. Yeah, and it's huh. interesting that we readers accuse Daisy of cowardice there because what she's really doing is refusing to continue in adultery. What she's really doing is saying, I can't leave my husband. I love him too. And that, we say, you coward. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> isn't that so? <laughs> I was struck by that for the, like, not, I don't say that for the first time, but I was struck more dramatically this time by the, by what, the fact that what is happening there is when Tom is saying, no, you did love me. It, it it literally it truly does change her mind about the whole thing. It's it, it, on the surface it seems I think like she's like she's afraid or she doesn't want confrontation or she's drunk or something. But it seems like in that moment she really does realize, no, I did love him, and it reminds her that there is 
it, to some degree, it seems to remind her that there is some sort of sanctity in that love, such as it was. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's uh, maybe, maybe sanctity is the wrong word. That seems like an odd um, yeah, concept to, to bring into this particular discussion, but I think there's something about uh, the hold that the marriage has on Daisy and Tom both that Gatsby can't affect. He can't just overthrow it by dreaming. And there's a sense in which the whole thrust of the novel is there are things about this situation that we're in that dreaming doesn't affect. We're doomed. We're doomed by what exists that we can't do anything about. And that's a sense in which this is really a universal story. He, he, he gives a different twist on the things that we're doomed by. And it's a 20th century twist. You know, we're doomed by marriage. Dang it. You know, <laughs> and that, that looks like a bad thing in some ways. And that's different than they would have said it in the 19th century. But in the same way that the, even the ancient heroes are doomed by circumstances beyond their control, Gatsby is too. No, I completely agree. And there's some, uh, it's significant that what is being appealed to is, between Daisy and Tom is less than the modern romantic ideal, right? Um, it's almost like your fantasy, your reality, your, your, you know, ambition, your dream that you're pursuing Gatsby, when it comes up against the reality of ancient institutions and traditions like marriage, whatever you might think of that, you're going to fall short. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is a very interesting idea for an American author to be exploring. The, the reality and the sort of immovability of ancient institutions and traditions. And it seems that it's an, it's an interesting, um, kind of dualism that he's playing with there between nostalgia and that sort of established institutional established institutions, because for, for Gatsby, he's appealing to nostalgia, right? He's appealing to think about what it was like when we were young. And Tom's basically saying he's appealing to the institution of marriage. And so those, there's uh Fitzgerald is sort of creating a dualism between those two things there's almost like a competition set up between them yes and then that line then of there are things going on here that you don't understand that that's really significant Mm -hmm. and that's probably one of the things that convinces that causes daisy to have doubt because she's like yeah that's actually kind of (laughs) true i think you're right i think you're Mm -hmm. right and it may not be that the that Tom is appealing or or even Fitzgerald is appealing to to the the institution of marriage as some sort of safeguard for all things good and right oh, and right. Right. No, right 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 definitely I, I think he's not saying that at all he's just saying that the that the protagonist is stuck that he's that he that he's never going to overcome the weight of the way things really are yes. his, at, at, we get in, in early chapter 6 he talks about when he's when we're getting this story of his history as James Gatz, he says the truth was that Jay Gatsby of West Egg, Long Island, sprang from his platonic conception of himself. Mm, that was such was, a good lie. He was a son of God, a phrase which, if it means anything, means just that. In other words, the phrase "son of God" means a platonic conception, a a fantasy that comes from a philosopher dinking around with ideas, and it just doesn't mean anything. I, I agree. I don't, I, I in no way read this as Fitzgerald flying the banner of the institution of marriage as being some sort of, yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't think he's saying ancient institutions are the way forward out of the mess we're in more like showing us that there are limits to your self-created yeah. reality. Yeah. I'd say that too. Yep. And I, well, I think, you know, <laughs> there's the lot when he's, t- when they're in the room, the ballroom upstairs, I mean, they're, when they're in the suite upstairs and the ballroom below has the wedding going on, it actually says from the ballroom beneath muffled and suffocating cords were drifting up on hot, hot waves of air. So, I mean, the hot, the, he's from the ballroom down below where people are getting married is muffled and suffocating cords. I mean, that's kind yeah. of a, kind of a depressing muffled and suffocating and then that <laughs> reminds them of their own wedding where someone passed out exactly yeah so i i didn't mean to imply that you know when i oh no i didn't think you were i, I think though that there is this i think i think that fitzgerald's um i think that the the sort of conflict that he's creating between the institution and nostalgia is really key because i think he's saying that neither of those things really ultimately uh, are 
particularly freeing. And so we're just sort of right. stuck. Because <laughs> at the end of chapter seven, uh, that that's a resolution between Daisy and Tom, but it doesn't feel happy. No, no, not at all. Partially because we're not trying, we're not following Daisy and Tom's career with nearly True. the identification that we're following Gatsby's, right? We're being taught throughout this whole novel to root for Gatsby and to see this as a tragedy that he's going to be foiled in the end. And that's the great Fitzgerald switcheroo. That's the 20th century switcheroo. We're rooting for basically an alley cat and a bad guy who is a, um, who's involved in a, in, a, in a fantasy that can do nothing but destroy him. And we're sad that such things work out that way. Yes. Giant switcheroo. And a lot of that has to do with narrative point of view and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, we, we are automatically going to root for the guy that's in our line of sight that the author is giving us. Uh, that's, why, that's why some of these uh, postmodern novels that want to like write through the eyes of a serial killer, you're like, this is, this is very, that's a dangerous narrative ploy. It's very hard <laughs> to create distance between your reader and that character. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is like, take a step back. How many movies do you watch where you find yourself rooting for the bad guy to get away from the police in the police chase? Like, think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's complicated. <laughs> uh, in part because it is, it is complicated. It, I, I would say movies are a little different. Um, like, I mean, if you look at Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was like the first movie that really ever did that. Actually, that's not really true. There's a movie called Rafifi from the 50s, which is a French um, crime movie about guys that are trying to rob a bank. And that's the f one of, that's considered the first movie where you really are the bad guys or the good guys, but you d also don't like them. But then Butch Cassidy oh. and the Sundance Kid, like the guy beats his wife and like, but then... He, he also is trying to provide for her and they're all very complicated and you're not really sure. Like in the end, you're kind of like, yep, that's about what was supposed to happen. Um, but it's from their point of view. Um, and it's kind of the first great heist movie. And then you get um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's, I think it's considered the first one where you're like, you're supposed to like the bad guys, sort of. Like they're criminals, but oh. you're supposed to like them. And that, so that was the big turning point. I think that was in the, what, 1973 or four or something like that. But movies, the way they can play with perspective, I think are different than what novels can do. Um, that's, that's an entirely different conversation for another day. <laughs> no, I, I would, I would agree. And this isn't a first person narrative through Gatsby. This is a more sophisticated treatment, but yeah. But yeah. yes. So, I was thinking about the the end of chapter six and the end of chapter seven, okay. kind of comparing them because I got to thinking, why does Gatsby put like why do we get the backstory of Gatsby, the Jay Gats story, uh, um, James Gats story? Why do we get that at the beginning of six, leading into seven, sort of like in that? What like why doesn't he tell us that much earlier when he starts telling us all the other things about Gatsby? Part of it is certainly it's more interesting to reveal things slowly, but he chooses to put it here in a very specific at this specific place for a specific reason. And at the end of chapter six, we get this, um, this, this sort of memory of, of Gatsby that it turns out, it, or it seems that he is telling, um, that he is telling Nick about. And Adam, would you be willing to read that? It's on 110 in my book. Um, it's the last, last full paragraph, the second to the last paragraph of chapter six, beginning with one autumn night. Well, actually, yeah, sure. start with the paragraph before that. He talked a lot about the past, and I gathered that he wanted to recover something, some idea of himself, perhaps, that had gone into loving Daisy. His life had been confused and disordered since then, but if he could once return to a certain starting place and go over it all slowly, he could find out what that thing was. And then we get an ellipsis. Yep. One autumn night, five years before, they had been walking down the street when the leaves were falling. And they came to a place where there were no trees and the sidewalk was white with moonlight. They stopped here and turned toward each other. Now it was a cool night with that mysterious excitement in it, which comes at the two changes of the year. The quiet lights in the houses were humming out into the darkness and there was a stir and bustle among the stars. Out of the corner of his eye, Gatsby saw that the blocks of the sidewalk really formed a ladder and mounted to a secret place above the trees. He could climb to it if he climbed alone, and once there he could suck on the pap of life, gulp down the incomparable milk of wonder. His heart beat faster and faster as Daisy's white face came up to his own. 
He knew that when he kissed this girl and forever wed his unutterable visions to her perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. So he waited, listening for a moment longer to the tuning fork that had been struck upon a star. Then he kissed her. At his lips' touch, she blossomed for him like a flower, and the incarnation was complete. <laughs> and then we get Nick's, it, Nick comes back to us, basically. Through all he said, even through his appalling sentimentality, I was reminded of something, an elusive rhythm, a fragment of lost words that I had heard somewhere a long time ago. For a moment, a phrase tried to take shape in my mouth, and my lips parted like a dumb man's, as though there was more struggling upon them than a wisp of startled air but they made no sound. And what I had almost remembered was incommunicable forever. So to me, well, to me, this is the, uh, this is the section of the book. Like, I think this is maybe my favorite part of my favorite couple of paragraphs of the whole book, but they didn't used to be. Um, and I think that he, I think what, what Fitzgerald is doing here is with perspective and, the ways that it introduces new things to the narrative, but also sort of helps us understand the characters and also a lot of things coalesce together, I think here. And then out of it springs, I think the rest of the narrative. What do you, what do you make of the Caraway's line that even through his appalling sentimentality, what do you make of him describing this, describing that scene as appalling sentimentality? Angelina, what do you think about that? What do I make of Nick calling it that? I think that that is just another example of this weird, what, attraction repulsion he's got with Gatsby. Hmm. Right? Hmm. The, the, the falseness of some of Gatsby's ness, <laughs> if I can say something as awkward <laughs> as that. Uh, it, it, you know, it grates against his ear at times. And then, but then he swings back around and gets caught up in it. Um, you know? Hmm. Hmm. And also just, just Fitzgerald giving some ironic undercutting to such a romantic, nostalgic moment. I mean, he's not telling the story I keep expecting him to tell. Mm -hmm. He doesn't end the chapter with the kiss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's also overdone, right? Like in, you can, you oh, can yeah. and over time it's probably blown up in Gatsby's mind. And so by the time he's telling it to Nick, it becomes something completely different than it was. And I mean, she blossomed for him like a flower and the incarnation was complete. It's like when you read that at the, the first time you read that, you're probably like, it's one of those sort of ostentatious lines that get that uh, Fitzgerald can do. And you're like, that's a great sentence. And at the same time, it's complete nonsense. And then, and then basically that's exactly what Caraway says. This, that was just nonsense. Whatever, whatever Gatsby thought that was, it wasn't, it isn't what it was, but it's beautiful nonsense. But, that's but the kind point of, of it is exactly. I think that, I think the point of it is that it's what Gatsby thought. And that's the whole, that is the substance of Gatsby yeah. is his fantasy. It's what he thinks. And, and it, the, we get a, a clue of that because Gatsby says himself, there's a secret place above the trees that if I could, I could climb to it, yep. if I climb alone mm -hmm. and there I could gulp down the incomparable milk of wonder. The idea is as soon as another human being is involved in this, then it's an imperfect fantasy. Yep. It can't actually yep. be experienced perfectly if there's somebody else looking at it. Mm -hmm. Because it is pure fantasy. And so well, that's why he says later that if, if once I kiss her and I wed this unutterable vision right. to her breath, I can never again romp like the mind of God. Yeah. Because it, it becomes a, a real human relationship. And but one he, of the things we but learn he does about it anyway. Gatsby, right. One of the things we learn about Gatsby is real human relationships are one step beyond what he's capable of. Yes. And that's why I thought that the line there, if I could just climb to it, if I could just, everything's just out of reach for Gatsby, um, which is why his longing is the essential part of who he is. He's, yeah. and, and that goes back to the courtly love tradition we were talking about in the last episode. It's all about that longing and it has to be out of reach. The moment you get it, it ceases to, to have any value. Um, it's the longing that drives you forward. But I forgot a line I wanted to bring up when we were talking about this idea that there are you know, ancient forces at work that Gatsby can't understand. That was also brought up in chapter six when he loses the inheritance. Yeah. And he says, I don't know how that happened. I mean, so clearly yeah. there are people who know how to navigate this world that Jay Gatsby doesn't know. Hmm. That's true. Mm -hmm. 
That's true. And, and Daisy is, is unknown to him in a, in a bunch of different ways too. Mm -hmm. She, um, the, the sense that once she's involved personally in his fantasy, it's too much for her. And she retreats to other relationships. She retreats to other sources of explanation. Um, she is not, uh, capable of supporting Gatsby's vision. And in, in a sense, she's in, um, indecipherable to him. He doesn't really understand her or what makes her tick. But neither do we. You know, I was thinking about how I was reading. She's kind of an incomplete character in some ways. And we don't, I don't think we really get a true sense of who she is. She's so, I don't know if wishy-washy is the term. It's not really a good term, but she's so sort of, I mean, we, we get that she's unhappy and that she's constantly going for happiness, but we don't really actually know what makes her happy, right? And it doesn't no, seem like I, she does either. I think we do get a um, a final word from Fitzgerald on on uh, that explains Daisy. Um, but, and it comes in chapter seven, I think it comes in chapter seven um, when they talk about what she sounds like. Oh, she <laughs> sounds like money? Yeah. yeah, yeah. She sounds like That's money. And, and it's, an, it's an explanation of her voice because her voice is the thing about her that we are all mesmerized by. Gatsby's mesmerized by it. Uh, yeah. Nick Carraway is mesmerized by it. every time she speaks, he stops and, and just goes on rapturously about her beautiful, beautiful voice. In contrast with when Jordan speaks, she almost yeah, always exactly. is just sort of like, eh. At one point, Nick says, she's got an indiscreet voice, I remarked. It's full of, I hesitated. He's talking to Tom. Her voice is full of money. He said suddenly, and Nick goes, that was it. I'd never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it. The jingle of it, the symbol song of it. High in a white palace, the king's daughter, the golden girl. Hmm. He, so Fitzgerald tells us it's money. That's what she represents. That's what she, that's what drives her. That's the source of her charm and her magnetic personality and her beauty. It's all wrapped up in that idea of money. You know, I'm so glad that you read that little bit there where the little bit of dialogue there because it's so telling and maybe a bit of foreshadowing in some ways that Tom is the one who can answer. She's next trying to figure out what it is and Tom's just like, oh, it's money. Like he's known this all along. That, that of all the characters, it might be Tom that sort of... Because it, it's Tom that says that, right? Yeah, that's Tom, yeah. right? I think it's telling that Tom is the one who can reveal that to Nick, that he understands that. He, he, he's sort of comfortable with it in a way <laughs> well tom can recognize it because that's his world and gatsby and nick are somewhat outside of that world even though gatsby has tried so hard to make that his world yeah i think you're right angelina it's not his world even though he's the richest guy in the in the piece yeah sure um, he is uncomfortable and out of place in a world of money because he's animated by something else yeah. he's animated by his dream and by his fantasy and by his single-hearted devotion but but Daisy represents the world that mm -hmm. Gatsby lives in, and she is she's full of money. That's her voice. Her voice. Yeah, is I was just gonna say that. How much of Gatsby's single-minded devotion to Daisy is really about the world she can enter him into? The the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She can. Uh, gosh. I've really been having the brain fog lately, <laughs> but it, it, she she's gonna validate his position in that world. Well, I don't know if she's if if she if he's trying to to use Daisy to get into the world of of money and society because when he finally realizes that she didn't like the party, he fires the staff. Yeah, and he shuts gets rid her of it. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, that's true too. That's true too. And, and I think it's the other way around. I think he that he's he suspects that the world of money is his way into Daisy. Mm, right. And I, that's why I think chapter six is such a is such a climactic moment because he finally gets her to his party. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 and he, he puts on the party of a lifetime and all he cares about is whether she's going to like it. And he asks Nick to stay later. Nick comes up to him after the party's over and all he can say is she didn't like it, did she? And then he shuts it down at that point, fires the staff, hires a bunch of bootleggers or whoever, Wolfsheim's people, and basically leaves the world of money altogether. Because it was a, it was a, it was a way in to Daisy. Yes. What's that line? Tramalchio disappeared. Yeah, that's right. His career as Tramalchio was over, which I exactly. Googled that. That's an old Italian play about a slave who becomes wealthy by shady means. Shady means, right. <laughs> but, and, so I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, Adam, but I think it's 
well, this is going to sound like, <laughs> I think it's more complicated than that, which isn't to say that I don't think you're thinking about it in a simplistic way, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, all right. But, so if you look at that paragraph there at the end of chapter six, I, and I think you would agree with this, but the one where you read it, I, he talked a lot about the past and he gathered, and I gathered that he wanted to recover something, some idea of himself, perhaps that had gone into loving Daisy. His life had been confused and disordered since then. But if he could once return to a certain starting place and go over it all slowly, he could find out what the thing was. And so I, that, that bit about how he's trying to recover something of himself that had gone into Daisy, some idea of himself. That's really interesting because yeah, he wants Daisy, but there's also something under the surface there that he's wanting that he's trying to recover. There's a nostalgia for her for the past, but there's also just nostalgia for something about himself that he's after. So... And, do you think then as he chases this dream and gets this dream, not of Daisy, but of, of the, the rich man persona, that he has lost part of himself in the process, lost his innocence, and he's desiring to go back to that? Well, I'm not sure. I don't know if I would say innocence, but if you look in that bit there below that, right at the end, before he kisses her, the stuff that Adam read there as well, he knew that when he kissed this girl and forever wed his unutterable visions to her perishable breath, he would never romp again like the mind of God. And I, that reminds me so much of, you know, some of the myths where you have the, the immortal person who somehow, who, who kind of decides to become mortal by being with yeah, somebody there's, immortal. There's definitely that to it. The Lord of the Rings, you know, the mm -hmm. Aon, Aragorn type thing, even the pair, that idea of the unutterable visions being wed to the perishable breath. Um, and, and I'm trying to figure out I don't have an answer for this. I'm trying to figure out like, is that is whatever he gave up when he kissed her there, um, that, that allowed him to romp like, you know, like the mind of God, is that really what he's after? Is that, is it, is, is it that that's behind this longing for Daisy. I mean, I think he loves Daisy. I think he's, he, he has longing for her, but I think it seems that there's also something about himself that's under the surface there. And oh, I would totally agree. Under the surface tied to whatever he lost in that moment that he kissed her metaphorically. Yes. Speaking. Yes. I totally agree. And I think it goes back to the beginning of chapter six, when he's telling his story, uh, when we're hearing about Jay Gatz or, or James Gatz, the idea that he, um, that, that Jay Gatsby was his platonic conception of himself that he was a son of God, whatever that means. And what, if, if that means anything, it just means this, the platonic conception of yourself, your fantasy, your ideal type that you create of yourself. I was going to say he made an ideal type for himself to follow. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I, and I think this passage at the end of chapter six tells us that one, and he says it, once he weds that, that platonic ideal to an actual person, and once it's, it's, it's rained down into a real human relationship, it necessarily becomes impossible to realize. And so what he's done is, is, is substitute because it's a, just impossible a, a for one affair okay. for this platonic yeah. conception of himself. Yeah. But then he pursues it right with all of the, with all of the single-minded zeal and purpose that he was, was before pursuing the platonic ideal. He stretches out to the green light and he it's Daisy or, or nothing. But, but do you notice how, how resilient it is that when she denies him in the hotel room, then we get, so he gave that up. He gave up trying to defend himself and then just doggedly went back to the dream. Mm. Yeah, he actually, it's probably where he's most comfortable. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. In the pursuit. Yes. I mean, he, the position he's in at the end of seven is standing outside the window. He's still longing. He's still yes. the outsider longing. They he, call it a vigil. That hasn't changed mm -hmm. at all for him. Nope. And, it, and I, will, I will submit to you, Aeneas doesn't change either. Odysseus doesn't change either. They are single-minded in pursuit of their goal. They're heroes for that reason. This is a weird twist on that <laughs> pattern. There are a lot of interesting structural things in chapter seven as well, though, So, um, which fit in all the things we're talking about. So in the moment when Gatsby's um, delusion is exposed is also the moment when realize Nick Nick realizes it's my birthday and I just turned 30 years old. Oh yeah, that's dramatic, so isn't it? it? It's fantastic because, you know, this is the end of his youth and, and youth is also associated with all of this, this decadent lifestyle, this, you know, devil may care attitude. I don't have to grow up. We can live on dreams. And then, so immediately Nick is thinking about, well, it's all down here from here. I'm, I'm 30. It's, it's all over for me. Just like it's all over for Gatsby. Just like it, 
it's it's the same um how does the country grow up motif um everyone's got to grow up and the other interesting twist is that and um anybody who's listened to my Cersei talks knows this is one of my little pet soapboxes but <laughs> one of the one of the most common structural uh, elements of a story is when a couple is reunited there's always some kind of wedding or wedding feast or there's some kind of symbolic moment to show that reunion and we get that here there's a little wedding feast between um tom and and daisy except it's so not right it's completely undercut they're eating cold leftovers <laughs> this is not yeah. the moment of a triumphant reunion. Everything, everything about what's happening is just so brilliantly playing with established forms and undercutting them. And in fact, they're not oh, even, agreed. they're not actually even touching the food, which I think is a nice touch. Or looking at each other, right? Are they, was yeah. there a line about that? Yeah, that's a really nice picture of, of, um, that we were talking about the institution of marriage and you just mentioned a wedding. That's a really uh, coherent Fitzgerald version of that, mm -hmm. that little meeting at the end of chapter seven, where they're staring into space over cold chicken. And, and then we have Gatsby standing outside and um, it, it, he calls it a sacred vigil is what Nick, Nick calls it. Willing to sacrifice himself and take the blame for the car accident. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess there is something heroic, maybe misguided, but heroic about that. But the vigil thing, I noticed in this reading that that word is used a few times. And in every other time that I could find, I'm not going to, don't hold me to that. But every other time I could find, guess what the, guess what the context is? Say that one more time, David. So the word vigil, the word vigil is used. He calls it a sacred vigil. He saw Gatsby standing outside of a home in hopes just in case something happens to Daisy, he's going to be there to protect her. And he says he's okay. watching over nothing, right? So the word vigil is used there and he calls it a sacred vigil. That word is used, vigil that is, is used a few times throughout these couple of chapters, but it's always been in, I believe it's always in con in a very specific context. Guess what that context is? I, what? Yeah, I don't know either. Dr. T.J. Eckelberg's eyes. Oh. The eyes, the Eckelberg. sign are always watching in vigil is what it says. Mm. And so I was very taken by the fact that then he switches and he uses it for Gatsby there. And he's mm. watching over Daisy. Yeah. He's watching, but he's also watching over nothing. Right. And it says that he keeps calling it the Valley of Ashes, right? That Eckelberg's watching over this Valley of Ashes. So I'm, right. I'm wondering what you... I'm trying to, I don't know what to, I haven't had enough time to think about that yet and figure out what I make of the fact that he uses, he says that Gatsby's watching over nothing, but then the same words that he uses for Gatsby's watching is the same words that he, word, word that he, talking is hard, word that he uses for uh, the sign for Eckelberg, which we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful motif. The, um, the, the image of sightless eyes gazing out over a waste of some kind um, is about the most powerful philosophical slash theological statement that the novel can make. And I, I really do think that the, the action that unfolds underneath that sightless gaze really does um, try and support it. That idea that there's, yeah. this is a waste. You just helped me though, because if Gatsby's watching over nothing, something who's sightless is kind of also watching over nothing, right? Well, right. That's yeah, what I was right. going to say. Eckelberg isn't really looking at anything and neither is Gatsby. He's looking at an illusion. He imagines they're having some fight to the death in the house. Exactly. Over him. And that's not what's happening at all. He, he doesn't see any more than TJ Eckelberg can see. Right. But right. In, of course, the doctor Eckelberg left. He left sort of a... Uh, cipher of himself up on the sign right and he departed and never to look back but gatsby is in, in the same way i don't i said but but in the same way gatsby is sort of like not a full version of himself at least as far as he's revealed he's sort of also a sort of well oh, he's, he's put a mask on right yeah he's put a mask on right you know well, yeah so he, he's the billboard version of himself yeah and we don't ever get to know what the real self is until the very very end and even then it's it's almost like there's a sop thrown to us. It, the the important Gatsby is the one without a background. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that, Angelina. The billboard version of himself. Yeah. Ties it nicely together. And I'm thinking too, also of um, 
of, of Mildred. I mean, this is another scene in which someone's illusion runs smack into the reality of marriage, right? Oh, you mean Myrtle? Yeah, Myrtle. Oh, Mildred, I'm all Fahrenheit 451 over here. I can't, I can't <laughs> get these, these heroines uh, together. But yes, I mean, what an image. She, it's Tom's car. So she thinks she's running to him and she gets run over and killed by his wife. That is, that's a strong statement about <laughs> the immovability of the institution of marriage. Mildred's not going to get anywhere. Gatsby's not going to get anywhere. They're all going to get run over by this thing they don't understand. I love the the intricate um, swapping of places in that set of scenes. The scene yeah. in the Valley of Ashes uh, yes. with the car and the the parallel um, uh, adulterous affairs going on, and the the parallel way that the the cuckolded husbands are figuring mm -hmm. it out, mm -hmm. and uh, it's almost Shakespearean the way yeah. the characters yes. switch places, and there's cases of mistaken identity, and you, you know, you, it, it seems like a Shakespeare comedy at some points. No, it does. It feels like exactly like that act four moment in a Shakespeare comedy where you yeah, think, am I in a tragedy? Thinking. Like, it, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> yes, you are, Fitzgerald says. <laughs> but he sets up so much of it like a comedy. You do think this is going to end with two lovers overcoming obstacles and living happily ever together, you know, and yeah, Fitzgerald just twists that all up. I, I agree it, that it felt very Shakespearean to me, too. <laughs> It could have been played for laughs how much mistaken identity is going on here. Yeah, and, and also I love the way that in Chapter 7, it's it's compact and moves quickly. And you mentioned that some uh, at the beginning, David, that you yeah. wonder if how fast it's moving seems, you know, unrealistic. But I, but I, re I don't think it's forced. I think it's compact in a good way. We're, it's a short novel. It's nine chapters, right? And yeah, yeah. We're, we're treated to a lot of buildup with, with Gatsby's mis, um, mysterious past. And then we're getting a payoff here in chapter seven that I think is really pleasing because of how things interlock and how quickly they come to a conclusion. So I actually had a good reaction to the quick moving chapter seven. Well, you know me, I absolutely am in favor of short novels rather than long novels. So I've got no problems with it. But that, that's also very Shakespearean. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's a criticism that some people have or a difficulty some people have in right. some of his plays. Take take your time setting up the conflict and then resolve it very quickly. Yeah. Great. And it was hard to have battles on stage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another thing. You expect there to be some kind of duel over Daisy. Like, give me something, you know? And he, Do you, he doesn't. It's so great. Do you think that... I was going to ask you guys this. I'm glad you mentioned that. Do you think that there is a degree to which... Um, uh, there is a degree to which Tom and and Gatsby are both ultimately just cowards. What do you mean? So like Angelina, you know, in the moment you feel like they should actually try to like fight for her a little bit or like, you know, if you really love her, you'd have a real duel. Like, why are we not going out to the backyard and standing back to back with pistols and taking a few paces or something? But they kind of, it kind of just sort of fizzles out and Gatsby doesn't really stand up for her and Tom just sort of like, in a way he sort of just pushes her away. I mean, I, do you think, I know, I don't think, I don't think a duel, I think a duel or some sort of physical altercation would have been out of place in this, in this particular story, especially since it comes down to, they're, they're both appealing to Daisy. Gatsby says, say you never loved him. Yeah. And Tom says, of course you loved me. And it's down to her. She decides. Yeah. And because of the the situation and frankly, the culture that they're, um, that, the, that the characters live in, it comes down to her decision and it's more or less final. Is she going to leave Tom? Yes or no. I don't know that there's a, there really, really a place for a physical altercation, but for all of that, I do think that it's, that it is a climactic conflict. I mean, in the sense of, of the, the questions that are being answered in that hotel room in the plaza, um, the whole story is riding on it. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's what's sure. so fascinating to me is that, Fitzgerald does give us this very intense, it's a tense moment. Goodness. I yeah. love the flipping back to how uncomfortable Nick and Jordan yeah, are. In the was, yeah. What an awful moment, right? To be stuck in. Um, but, but he creates it in, in a, in a way hot, that is different. Which has a yes. super good touch. Right. Like everything's just ready to explode. You feel it. It's so well done. They, and they, and I love that. I love that they talked about, well, they talk about how they're going to go to the park or go to a movie or something, but then they end up in this room. And I love that. I love the sort of cinematic 
staging quality of that because they even say, oh, there's no more windows. And they say, I guess we need to get an ax. Like they're trapped there. Yes, we're going to break our way out. But then Daisy won't break her way out. Mm. And maybe she shouldn't. I'm I'm right with there with with Adam saying it's weird that we're rooting for them to be together. Mm hmm. Um, <laughs> that, that that the description of the heat on that in the on that day in chapter seven is really, you said that a minute ago, David. I think that's a really great narrative touch that the that yeah, there's an impression it. about the whole scene. It's and beautiful. That's one of the things that I you know, we talked about the the Hemingway and Fitzgerald comparisons, and I, for as different as they are, I think that one of the things that they're both really great at is that sort of thing, um, the way that that they say so much by well, saying so little by just creating a scene and a moment um, that that can express so much without having to tell us uh, tell us at all, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, and like I said, there is something cinematic. Like if you're filming that, you could you could, you could really play up the sense that they're just they all feel dreadful because of how hot it is, and they can, and, you, and that heat is some, completely inescapable. And then they're trapped in this room that they can't escape. And you could have, you know, you could have the seal. You could film it where it seems like the ceilings are looming over them, or you know, they're. It's, I guess you can't really make the room too small because it's uh, a really fancy hotel suite. But <laughs> but I, I love the, the sort of physicality of it without having to go too overboard in describing it. Yeah, yeah. At one point he goes, as Tom took up the receiver, the compressed heat exploded into sound. Yeah. And we yeah. hear Mendelssohn's wedding march through the, through the telephone from yeah. down below. I love mm-hmm. that sentence. Yeah. I felt so many echoes when they drove into town to go to the hotel of the earlier scene when they went to the love nest, um, where, where Nick is being invited into the intimate lives of these couples. And, and but the, the first scene mm. also ends in an explosive moment with Tom breaking Myrtle's nose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so many echoes there. I mean, I just really don't like Tom. So maybe that's why I can't. Well, that, I, can't I love that you just brought. I love that you brought that up because in that moment, it tell there's a that's a really interesting piece of characterization because in the first scene that you reference, he like you said, he breaks her nose. He physically does explode. Mm-hmm. But in this scene, he restrains himself physically, even though he has probably pro- he might actually have much more of a reason to punch someone in the nose. Um, and so that's that there's a lot that that tells us about Tom and, and about well, the whole scene, the whole tone and mood of the scene. I think it, that. And of course, in the first scene, Nick's sleeping and he wakes up to Myrtle screaming because he, because she punched him, he punched her in the nose. That's also interesting. That's a that's a nice bit of narrative structure there by, by Fitzgerald. Yeah, oh, I think yes. do, that, yeah, that it it uh, reinforces kind of a, a pyramid shape where you foreshadow something in the in the beginning and then bring it around in the end. It's beautiful. Yeah, he Angela, you've been talking about structure in chapter seven, and I think Fitzgerald gets more credit. He he's the proper amount of credit for just how good he is at crafting a sentence, but he also knew how to craft just the structure, the formal elements oh, of the yeah. novel. And how short and this is. Other he's work as well. Tight. He's got his structure's got to be tight for such a short novel. Yeah, you can't be it's messing around. It's harder to write short books than long books. It's harder to write a short story than a novel. As Mark Twain said. Oh, well, see, I'm tracking with the greats. <laughs> so I was going to write you a short letter, but I didn't have time. So I just wrote a long one. Okay. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a classic quote. Um, well, let's, let's start thinking about the final chapters here. What are you, what are you all going to be looking for? Angelina in particular, you know, the novels come to a head. We've had this climactic moment with a little bit of anti-climax mixed in, as you said, what are you going to be looking for as we get move into our resolution? I have no idea how this book ends, so I'm just going to put myself out there. <laughs> You're I going ex- for the ride. I am expecting Fitzgerald to comp- continue to play with my expectations. I expect some kind of reversal here that I'm not going to foresee. I, I would not be surprised if it's going to feel somewhat abrupt and anticlimactic, and that that will all be very purposeful for what he's trying to accomplish. I think this book is absolutely brilliant so far. I'm just... I am smitten here. I'm loving it. <laughs> I love it. Adam, what do you what do you kind of recommend people look out for as they uh, move into these final? Well, chapters? I like I like what you said about we've got a resolution coming because the end of the story is coming, and we we appear to have passed the climactic moment or moments. I mean, I think the scene in the Plaza Hotel is certainly plot wise mm-hmm. um, 
qualifies as a climactic moment. Although I will say, reiterate what I said in the last episode, that the, that the scene earlier in the novel, when um, Gatsby realizes that Daisy cannot possibly meet his expectations mm-hmm. serves mm-hmm. as sort of a climax too. everything from that moment is kind of downhill. Yeah. But, but I will agree that the, the scene in the hotel is, a, is certainly a climax. So, th- so the question then is, as we move into the resolution, what does the author do after the climactic moment or in Gatsby's case, if his dream of, um, of attainment is finally, finally fails, how does that work itself out? What are the consequences in this real physical world that he lives in of the, the um, death and destruction of his, of his dream. And that's what we should probably be watching for in the last two chapters. Agreed. I am so curious of, will he continue this pattern of holding fast to this dream, even in the face of the rejection of like, like, is he just so unable to cope with the death of the dream that he's going to hold on to it anyway? Or does he reject it and come to some sort of embracing of reality? And then what does that do to him? Mm. love it Mm. well we are going to uh finish the book for the next next episode so that'll air on december well probably the evening of december 21st and then um we will answer your questions in the following episode so make sure that if you have questions for us you're sending those in you can post those on the close reads facebook page or you can email them to me and the close reads email is, well, you can email me directly at david at Institute.com or you can email them to close reads podcast at gmail.com. That's probably easier just in terms of keeping track of them. And of course, like I said, post them on Facebook as well. Um, Adam, I don't know if you've been following any of the Facebook conversations, but there are quite a few people who have expressed how much they hated this book the first time they read it and now are loving it. So hey, we're doing happy. good work, Angelina. <laughs> That's right. It's my own little personal evangelism for authors. <laughs> I love it. Well, Matt, maybe Matt Bianco should come on and uh, take issue with that or something. Yeah, he's probably putting frowny faces <laughs> on all of those posts. <laughs> um, I do. I'm very fascinated by the con- the brief conversation we had there about how about how Gatsby kind of sets himself up. He's like, he sets an ideal type for himself and he sort of pursues that. And, and what that means is something I'm kind of going to be looking for as we move to the end of the book. I We're think that's fascinated a fascinating that. idea, especially with regard to the American conception of itself. Hmm. I mean, his whole platonic conception of himself being what's real that's what people say about America. America is the only country founded on an idea. Hmm. So I think this is all very apropos to figuring out what it means to be an American, who who we are. Hmm. I agree with that. Hmm. Any final thoughts you want to add? No, let's get to reading. Can't wait to talk about the last two chapters. (laughs) I'm going to put on my Christmas socks and finish this book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Adam's got to go make some like tiny people or something. So. Tiny cloth people for the grown-up <laughs> kids. We'll see. With great Gatsby quotes. Yeah. yeah. You just set up, you could just use little tiny cloth people to set up the scene in the, in the suite. You just like, make a stop <laughs> motion the, movie or of something. Of the car wreck and the, the <laughs> All of that feels so Christmas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it seemed very festive. I think that's the word for it. <laughs> Well, thanks to you both for joining me again. I've really enjoyed this. And um, I'm very much looking forward to the last two episodes. But I got to be honest, I'm kind of not looking forward to not talking about this book anymore. I can't believe how fast <laughs> this went. I had a little yeah. moment last we night. Done, we should have done David Copperfield. We could be on uh, for six months. <laughs> the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's such a thing as too much of a good thing, I suppose. Um, <laughs> leave people wanting more, right? Um but seriously, thanks to you both. Uh, I am very much looking forward to to talking about the conclusion and then answering people's questions. So people, don't forget to send in your questions, post your questions. Um, and as always, don't forget that you can follow us over on Instagram. We have a Close Reads podcast Instagram page now. And then we also have uh, Close Reads Twitter and we have the Facebook page. And you can, you can get in touch with us all sorts of ways. We're trying to make it easy for you to get in touch with us, which may have been a mistake in retrospect. But, uh, <laughs> we're going for it. Um, I guess with that, we're done, right? Is that, I guess, well, I guess everything's done. Adam, you want to plug anything you're up to? Um, check us out on the web, centerforlit.com. Look at the Pelican Society, pelicansociety.com, our membership uh, site for all things literary. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. Yeah. Oh, I should. Oh, there's one other thing I should remember. I should um, remind everyone of, and yeah. maybe you don't know this. Center for Lit is celebrating its 15th anniversary this oh, winter. Oh wow! Congratulations. And yeah, we started 15 years ago and it's still going strong. So we're having a 15% off sale on our website. So everything in the store is 15% off. Is there a coupon code or an end date on that or anything? Uh, there's a coupon code. It's published all over the website. Um, end date okay. is still to be determined. So um, it's it. I can't remember the coupon code. It has something to do with Happy Hap's birthday, Center for Lit, or something. Will okay. Santa deliver this to me? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> a a coupon code. A brown truck. He never, you never want... returns my calls, so I don't really know about that. You want Santa to deliver the coupon code for you, or like no, the, whatever I order. Oh, I just, oh okay. Like, I I elves wrapping it at Andrew's house. I mean, Adam's house, and you know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, he, he'll have the little people do it for you. Um, they do come alive, right? I assume that's all part of this. They come alive and do stuff for you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Angelina, what about you? What do you want to plug? I uh, mentioned last week, um, my classes are going to be opening registration in February. And I, I forgot to say that the classes fill up extremely fast, like within three days, they're filled up. So if you're, if you're interested, figure out if you want to do it now rather than <laughs> later and uh, get on the mailing list so you don't miss the, the announcements. And I also did, um, I did uh, finally listen to the demand I got and I did design a class for adults. It's a year long class for adults designed to teach you how to read well and how to teach literature well. So if, you, if you've been uh, thinking about that, you can go over to my website, angelinastanford.com, and sign up for the mailing list there to get the official announcement on that. So much good stuff out there. I don't know which to choose, so I'm going to do it all. Um, <laughs> that sounds like the best <laughs> pant land ever. Sounds yep. expensive, but we're going to go for it. Um, so again, thanks to you both. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. We will be back next week to talk about the end of The Great Gatsby. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.